Um, I want to just remind us of a couple of things that we have seen over the last few weeks um, that just remind us of where we've been so that we kind of uh, just have a little bit of a refresher. Um, you will probably remember that uh, last week we talked about David, the fact that David had instructed uh, Hushai. Hushai was a servant of David, uh, he, or he became a servant of David. And he came uh, to David as David was leaving Israel uh, because Absalom is on the way in. Absalom is coming in to really take over the kingdom. Uh, David's servants in one capacity or another are coming to him and talking to him and he's sort of telling them what to do. Some of them are going with him. Some of them are staying behind. Um, he's having to leave a lot, uh, of people that he has, uh, more or less collected in his kingdom and, uh, on his way out. And one servant that comes to him is Hushai and he tells, he tells Hushai the best, really the best way that you can serve me is to stay here and be a spy on the inside. And so Hushai is basically his job is to stay in Jerusalem and meet Absalom as Absalom is coming into the city and pretend like he is on Absalom's team, more or less. And uh, as a member of Absalom's team, he's here to serve him as he served David. And he, at the same, But at the same time, the charge is to subvert all the advice of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is the, uh, the, the one whose counsel is like receiving the counsel of the Lord. What he said came to fruition. And so Hushai is there to, in some way, undermine the counsel of Ahithophel and try to get into the in, in, good graces of Absalom and advise him poorly. And he, he does that. And then the second part of the plan is to uh, go and tell the priests the inner workings and the ongoings and the inside baseball of what's going on in Absalom's kingdom. And once he tells the priest, the priest will then have this little kind of underground network of communication where they're going to send a text message to the people on the outside of the city and they're going to email so-and-so and and they're going to send a tweet to whoever. And eventually it'll get back to David who will uh, then understand what the plans are and how they're going to proceed. And so uh, Hushai begins working things to his, his advantage and, and, and trying to turn the council of Ahithophel. Ahithophel for his part gives some military advice to Absalom and he's got basically some key components of his advice. He, he's telling Absalom, we need to gather as, much, as many men as possible, as many as 12,000 men, gather them together, strike David immediately, and try to do as little damage to the, the men around David as possible and only get David. The idea would be we'll strike so fast, so quickly, that all of the men around David will leave, will flee because they're not ready to fight. David will be left alone and we'll, you know, kind of corner him. We'll, we'll kill him. And all of the rest of his men will have no choice, but to turn to Absalom and come into his kingdom. And it's honestly, it's really sound advice for reasons we'll get to tonight. But for one reason or another, Ahithophel seeks the counsel of of uh, Hushai to see what he has to say, even though he trusts uh, Ahithophel. So uh, Hushai turns the advice of Ahithophel and gives Absalom different advice, different counsel. He says, look, David is not going to be with his men. He's too smart for that. He's going to go hide. You're going to go attack the men, and he's not going to even be there, and you're going to end up fighting them. And then you're going to look really bad because you've gone out and tried to kill all of Israel and you're not even going to get a hold of David. You're not going to be able to reach him. And uh, it sounds pretty wise to to Absalom, but the the flaw in Absalom's thinking is many fold, but but it's giving David more time. And that's all Hushai is trying to do is give David more time to, uh, rally the troops, if you will, and get some men around him that can fight with him. 
Uh, and, and we're going to see some of that tonight. And so Ahithophel loses face and he realizes that Absalom is going to take the advice of Hushai and he's going to wait. And he knows, Ahithophel does, he knows that that is going to be to Absalom's detriment. And that's going to kill Absalom. That's going to end up killing Absalom as we're going to see tonight. And so Ahithophel, you know, we have to kind of deduce what he's thinking as he commits suicide. But it's not a huge leap to think he knows that this is going to end up being really bad for Absalom, that he's going to end up dying, and David's going to end up walking back into the city. And if David walks back into the city and finds Ahithophel there, who knows what David is going to do to Ahithophel. And so he decides, uh, you know, my life in my own hands is better than my life, my life in the hands of David, which I, knowing the actions of David, I doubt that's true, but maybe it is. And so he, he takes his life into his own hands and commits suicide. And so we ended last week basically there where Ahithophel has committed suicide. Absalom has waited, has waited just a little bit to be sure that they can gather all of Israel on his side and go after David with as much might as he can possibly muster, which essentially buys David time. Now, so chapter 17 ends with David arriving in Mahanaim, and there's a, a, a plethora of Gentiles that are coming out to aid him, including a recently conquered foe in Rabbah, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, but let's read the passage here in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 17 verses 24 all the way down to 29. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Okay, remember that was that was Hushai's advice last time, is we need to gather all the men of Israel, not just 12,000. So he, he, get, he crosses with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nachash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. Got all that? And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nachash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Mahir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and uh, Barzilia, the Gileadite of Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans, and lentils, honey with curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry, and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Um, okay, now this is actually, there, there's a lot of significant things in here, and some of the names we're actually going to see come up. Uh, there's kind of, a, a, again, there's, there's Amasa, who's, he, he's going to come up again uh, later at, uh, next week, and um, several other people are, are coming up for a second time. And we see this, this weird name here, uh, Shobi, the son of Nachash, uh, from Rabbah of the Ammonites. We're going to talk about him in just a second. These are, this is significant. But what you need to gather from this, this section of text, you remember when David, uh, at the very beginning, he, he gained his kingdom and he went out into areas surrounding Israel and he began to conquer them. And he began to put them under his charge. And we've been talking about for some time that David is establishing the kingdom of God. And David is, is uniquely suited to do this because as the, the text has brought out, he's, he's a man after God's own heart and has a, 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 a propensity toward repentance, toward acting in a way that, that, uh, that God would respond in particular situations. And as God's king, he's uniquely suited to do that. And, and David, David in particular is. And, and 
we've seen that a number of times now. He's committed some sins, no doubt, and he's being punished for those sins, being disciplined for those sins, no doubt about that either. But at the same time, he is a benevolent king and he is good. And the relationships that he has built with these people who are his vassals is now coming to his aid. Think about that for just a second. Um, Just sort of, you can gather what kind of king and what kind of uh, suzerain or what kind of, uh, say, lord he is over the nations that have basically submitted their kingdoms to him, that when he is deposed of his throne and sent out into the wilderness, they come to his aid. I mean, just think about that for a second. Think of the logic there. What would be to your advantage as a Gentile nation who has been conquered? Certainly uh, the prince uh, Shobi from Rabbah, um, the kingdom of Rabbah was, was conquered some time ago by David. What, what does he have to gain by helping uh, the deposed king of Israel instead of uh, going after Absalom and submitting to him and showing allegiance to him as the new and more authoritative and more maybe more powerful uh, person? No, he comes after David and, and gives aid to David. Uh, so that should tell you something about the, the nature of David's reign, at least, and the way that they saw who David was as the Lord's king. And, and these people providing for the people in the wilderness is really Yahweh providing David and his people with food, which it's not insignificant that it comes from the Gentiles. Uh, you know, we, we've seen this, you see this in the New Testament even. The kingdom of God being received by the Gentiles is a theme that runs really through the Bible, through, significantly by, by the Gentiles. Some of the Gentiles are some of the ones that, that say the most profound things about the kingdom of God, where you have here all the people of Israel mounted against God's king, and the Gentiles being the one that receive him. That's not an insignificant theme that will be picked up on in the New Testament. We'll see that with Jesus. We'll see that with the apostles as they go out to, to preach the gospel and it be received by the Gentiles. We'll see that with certainly with the apostle Paul. Um, so that's that's not an insignificant theme running throughout scripture that, it, that God's king would be received by the Gentiles and be aided by the Gentiles in spite of the rebellion of the people of Israel. Now, there is this interesting character. Oh, wait, let me get back to the map here. Um, so just to, so you have your kind of get your bearings, um, Mahanaim is out here east of the Jordan. I don't know how, I don't know what it looks like on your screen, so I'm not sure how closely you can see this, but Mahanaim, you probably see the bigger letters, Amon out there to the right. Uh, Rabbah is down here south of Amon, which is Shobi, we're about to talk about it in just a second. Mahanaim is up to the north and the west, uh, just slightly to the west, but mostly to the north of Rabbah and Amon. And so David is sort of camped out there. Notice the significance of that location is that he is one east of the promised land. So we talked about that the last couple of weeks. That's significant in and of itself. But more importantly, He's outside the land of promise, and that's not insignificant either. And, uh, and so he is he's sort of cast out, evicted, if you will, from the promised land. And we've seen over the last few weeks that that is a result of David's sin. So now we have this character, Shobi, the Ammonite from Rabbah, who was probably, most likely, the brother of Hanun, in whose place David most likely appointed Shobi as his vassal. Um, you may remember, if you dig all the way back in your mind to 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, where uh, Hanun, who is the king over, uh, over Rabbah, an Ammonite city, he trims the beards of David's men, 
Remember, David says, hey, there's a new king. I'm going to show kindness to Hanun, who is the son of Nachash, who his father showed me kindness. I'm going to show him kindness. And the people around Hanun were like, you know, don't don't give in to David. He's not showing you kindness just to show you kindness. He's going to he's got ulterior motives. And so Hanun just decides I'm going to I'm going to show him how you know, how big and bad Rabbah really is and how don't mess with the Ammonites. So he shaves off David, the beards of David's men. And David, it's an insult to the men. It's an insult to David. It's an insult to his kind gesture. And so he decides to conquer him. And we're not really told anything about uh, the, the reign of Hanun or anything like that afterwards. But all of a sudden we get in this passage, Shobi, who is over the people in, uh, in Rabbah. So it's not... It's not without, uh, you know, without um, warrant to suggest that David most likely killed Hanun and, and replaced him with his brother who was willing to show him kindness. We see that uh, both of them are the son of the same father. We see in 2 Samuel 10, 1 to 2, after this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun as the son of Nachash as his father dealt loyally with me. And then we see here in verse 27 of 17, David came to mind, I'm Shobi, the son of Tahash. So uh, they're brothers, they're clearly brothers. And most likely that's probably because they, uh, Hanun was killed in that whole altercation and replaced with Shobi, or he took over the throne and was much kinder to David. Obviously here, he is David's vassal. He's coming to support David as he is out in the wilderness. And um, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And that sounds very eerily similar to uh, the people being hungry and thirsty out in the wilderness as they're making their way from Egypt on up to the promised land. And so the men come out and they give aid to David and they've got this, man, they've got an impressive storehouse of, of things that they breed, uh, that they bring to them, beds, basins, pottery, ware, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentil, honey, curd, sheep, cheese from the herd. And obviously with all of that comes the most significant thing, transparent sympathy, um, that they are showing to, uh, Yahweh's King. And so that's aid to David and transparent sympathy. I'm going to go to the next slide. Um, but the under underlying all of that, which is, which has to be called out, it, and and part of the reason that you're seeing it brought out here in the biblical text, is they were Yahweh's servants because they stood beside Yahweh's appointed king, um, and they did this with some risk. Because, it, like I mentioned, you know Absalom has all the power here. But so for them to serve David instead of serving Absalom is not insignificant. That's a big deal. That, that's a, that takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of faith that David actually is Yahweh's appointed king. Um, David, we've talked about David as being judged. But we will see time and time again that often the instruments that God uses to judge God's people will in turn be judged for the way they acted in their judgment for which God used them to judge his own people. All right. <laughs> so if, if you can follow that, that train, God will take an instrument, a person, a people group, will judge his people with that people group. And then we'll turn around and judge the people he used for the way they responded by in exercising that judgment. As an example of that, we will see with Babylon as they come in, and he tells Habakkuk this, that, that he's going to use the Babylonians to judge the people, the men of Israel, the people of Israel, and they're going to come in and take them captive. And then he's going to turn around and judge the Babylonians for the fact that when they came in to judge the Israelites, they were overly severe and harsh. So just because David is being punished here, 
doesn't mean first that he's not Yahweh's appointed king. He is. And it also doesn't mean, second, that he would give uh, grace or show favor to anyone who responds in judgment to uh, or responds in, in, in kind to supporting Absalom and attacking David. He will turn around and judge them as well. Uh, Absalom's death, um, uh, um, we saw last, last week um, Ahithophel's suicide. That, that's judgment from God to them because of the way that they responded to God's king. God has a right to judge his people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the that people have a right to exercise that same kind of judgment. So uh, they're held accountable, in fact, for how they respond. And so these respond kindly to David's king. They understand David as king. They understand that Yahweh has appointed David as king, and they will uh, in in uh, in kind support him. And and of course that comes with risk because if what happens if David gets killed and Absalom reigns? Well, they're all going to die. That's the reason Ahithophel uh, committed suicide. They're all they're going to die if if you know if David dies, Absalom reigns. They're going to die if David reigns and Absalom dies. Then Ahithophel saw he was going to be you know put to death. And so there, there's this interesting dynamic. David is is excommunicated from the promised land. And yet, even in the midst of his discipline, God continues to take care of him through the hands of other people. Another thing that I think is, is it, in terms of application to us, in terms of things that we should really think about, um, is the fact that at no point during, the, during discipline of his children um, does he ever stop providing for them. Uh, and that, that's, that's, a, that's an incredible testimony, I think, of God's just goodness and kindness. How often are we, when we're mad at somebody, we, you know, shut ourselves up, we, we cut off communication, we don't want to hear from them, we, you know, we ignore them completely, and yet that isn't the way God responds to his children at all. Uh, he continues to meet their needs, and he continues to take care of David, even in the midst of, of such discipline that David is under. Um, so... We, we're ready for battle now, and uh, um, Absalom is going to come out to, uh, to join the, the, the battle and to fight David. And we see some interesting indications here that some time has clearly passed because David has many more than the 600 bodyguards that he had previously. So we know that there has been the, – the author does not tell us how much time has passed – but it's been not an insignificant amount of time, enough for David to get probably, I'm assuming, some shoes on his feet and some, uh, some men around him to help fight. And he's got uh, a, a good number of troops, as we're going to see, uh, surrounding him. So 2 Samuel 18, 1 to 5 says, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out with us. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. Uh, so be a recruiter. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Now, that's a lot of people. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, uh, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders 
to all the commanders about Absalom. That's an important part. And when the biblical author underscores that, you know, you better pay attention to it because it's, it, it's important. And so, so it is here. David has mustered a, 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 a pretty large army at this point, and he has divided them in thirds so that he has this sort of multi-pronged attack that he can uh, go after Absalom. He's used that attack before. It served him well in the past, and he's going to do it again. And David, it seems in this passage, he's intent on going out to battle. Perhaps David has learned his lesson from the time that he stayed at home, and that's when the whole sin with Bathsheba happened. In this case, he says, I'm going to go out with you, and I'm going to see to it that you know we, we conquer the army. But I think more than anything, David probably wants to see to it that Absalom is not killed and that he is there on the field of battle to be sure he takes care of Absalom. Uh, we've seen this with David over and over. Um, he loves his children and he doesn't even, again, David is, is acting very much in the vein that we've seen God act with David. That though he's under discipline and though he wants to deal with him, at the same time, he, he doesn't hate him. And David is here. We saw him fed up with Absalom a few chapters ago. He's like, I can't even talk to the guy again. And, 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 but yet he still loves him. And he still cares for him and doesn't want to see anything bad happen to him. But what the men realize is every bit of what, um, what Ahithophel had told Absalom was going to happen, that David was going to hide himself, or that, that Hushai told uh, Absalom that w- was going to happen, that David was going to hide himself and not be near his men. And sure enough, that's what they're telling him to do when it comes to the battle, you know, get away. So it's like Hushai was deceptive enough to buy David time, but... Uh, but his words actually did end up to some extent coming true. And so uh, David is told, stay here, be a recruiter, send men out to us, and we'll go do the fighting. And, um, and so if David, w- they, the reason is if David was captured, then um, they, they, would, uh, they would be, you know, have nothing left to fight for and they would end up having to accept Absalom as king. They would have to give up completely. So David needs to stay back. He needs to stay hidden so that the army doesn't capture him. And so David gives explicit instructions to deal gently with Absalom, not, not to don't kill him. In other words, um, take, take him alive. David, I guess is still under the impression perhaps he can reform him or maybe a life in prison for Absalom is better than death. And so um, he, he, his order and, uh, that it, it anticipates the events of the battle that's going to take place, uh, following verse five, these instructions are consistent with David's treatment of all his enemies. We've seen David do this time and time again, where he is generous with his enemies and he forgives them. We're going to see this in the coming weeks happen with Joab, where, Oddly enough, David is remarkably kind to Joab in some ways. In some ways, he's kind of ruthless with Joab, but even though Joab's going to be, a, be an idiot himself in the future. But uh, David is kind to, to, to his enemies, and he, he treats them with kindness. And so here with Absalom, his son, uh, he wants to do the same. So there's this battle that takes place in the forest of Ephraim, and it, it takes place from... Um, 2 Samuel 18, 6, all the way to verse 18. And um, Absalom ends up caught in the, uh, basically, in just kind of a weird scenario. Absalom is just sort of riding a donkey by himself, and somehow his head gets hung up in a tree, and the donkey keeps going, and he ends up just hanging there. Uh, Not dead, completely alive, but just hanging there, and Joab is going to take care of him. So I want to read this from the scripture rather than me tell you about it. Um, 18 verses 6 to 18, uh, and it goes like this. Let me get my cursor over here. Okay. Then David must, oh wait, sorry, uh, verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. 
And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people than the day that, that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding. <laughs> this is crazy. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, what? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of ten thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out against uh, my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. (laughs) Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom, while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Absalom's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones and all Israel fled one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He came, he he called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. To answer your question, no, we don't know where Absalom's monument is. I knew that I I had a feeling that was coming. Uh, But here's this just remarkable story where Absalom is sitting on his, his mule, obviously texting, not paying attention. His mule walks right up under a, under a Oak tree and it catches his head. His mule keeps walking and he's left uh, kicking his legs and can't, can't get out uh, suspended between heaven and earth. So very strange, uh, circumstances, but here he is caught. Um, and, uh, so there's this fierce battle and what is, what happens? But Joab says, Hey, um, look, I, I would have, I would have killed him. Um, there, there's a, I think I missed a blank. I'm pretty sure. Um, what, um, thrust through hearts with the darts hurled by Joab should be there. And the last part of that sentence on that, that last point, um, I missed the blank in the, in the slides there, but, um, Joab is the answer there. So Joab says, look, I would have given you tons of money if you had just, you know, thrust him through and went ahead and put an end to him. And, and the guy, the person responds to him, no, 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 no. First of all, I heard David tell us not to kill him. And I would never reach out my hand against the Lord's anointed or the Lord's anointed son. And, um, and especially not at his command. And second, if I did that and David found out, and you know he would found out, you would throw me under the bus in a hurry. You know you would. And Joab, no doubt, would have thrown him under the bus. And so uh, he's like, no, I would, I would never do that. Now, here's a curious part about all this, that uh, uh, Ahithophel's strategy that he originally proposed to Absalom in some ways, was followed in the battle between David and Absalom, but it was carried out by David's armies rather than Absalom's armies. And I want to show you what I meant, what I mean by that. First, before I do that, 
forest of Ephraim is right here under Gilead. So if you can see that, I don't know how much you can see on the screen, but it says there forest of Ephraim. It's inside that circle. Um, just to get your bearings out east of the Jordan river. That's important. So Ahithophel for his strategy wanted to cause panic in David's army, but Absalom's army is the one that struck down and Absalom's army is the one that fled into the forest, um, into the, the uh, forest of Ephraim. Uh, Ahithophel wanted to isolate David alone, but who's the one that ends up isolated? Absalom ends up being the one isolated. Uh, Ahithophel thought that finishing off David alone would finish the war, but really the death that ended up bringing peace to the whole situation was the death of Absalom. Um, who, and, and by the way, Absalom's name literally means father of peace. He actually brought turmoil. His death ended up bringing about peace. So there's a little twist of irony there um, toward the end. So one of the men, again, they see, uh, they, they see Absalom hanging in a tree. They report it to, to uh, Joab. And uh, as he did many times in uh, this you know, last, what, however long it's been, a year or so of David's, of David's life, uh, Joab acted against David's explicit instructions. It is pretty abundantly clear that Joab sees David as growing weak. We're going to see a lot of this next week as we deal with Joab. But it's pretty clear that, that Joab is seeing David as being weakened and won't do what it takes. Um, and Joab is not a stranger to taking matters into his own hands and, uh, and just exercising control of the situation in spite of David's warnings. Now, Joab has been with David for quite a long time. So you can imagine that they have sort of like this kind of brotherly relationship to some degree where, you know, they hate each other in some capacity and they, but they love each other in other capacities where Joab will ignore David completely and his instructions, but nobody else better. Uh, you know, that, that kind of situation, I can talk bad about David, but don't you dare that like that kind of feeling is what sort of comes through in the text a little bit. And Joab just ignores David altogether and, and seemingly attributes it to a sign of weakness and kills him. But notice how Joab actually does it. He doesn't, he stabs him through with the javelin, but then he pulls him down from the oak or whatever. And, and what does he do? He gathers his armor bearers around Joab, around uh, Absalom. And when the biblical author tells us that the armor bearers, that all the men gathered around him, struck him and killed him. So even when Joab stabbed him, he still wasn't dead. Why do you think that is? Well, we're not told exactly, but knowing, seemingly knowing Joab, it's a pretty shrewd move because you can imagine being asked who killed Absalom. I don't know. There were lots of people around. Lots of people hit him. I'm, I'm not sure who ended up striking the death blow. Um, so it seems like a pretty, pretty shrewd move to get some people who's, who have blood on their hands uh, around him at the same time. Now here's the way this story ends up being twisted. Oh, uh, there's a question here, David Maxwell. The forest took out more men than the sword in like manner to Absalom, question mark, divine intervention. Oh, I'm not sure how this is intended, this phrase. Uh, it could mean they ran into the forest and a bunch of critters and tripped them up and they fell and, you know, died and all of this kind of thing. Or if that, if that line is meant to convey that they ran, they fled from the armies and they went into the forest. And because David's men are out there and they, uh, they know the area better, the forest came to their aid in that sense. 
And I, I think that's I, my get, my gut tells me that's how it's intended is that the forest is sort of like personified here as coming to the aid of David's men meant to convey that uh, even, even all of creation is on the side of God's anointed king and that it, it came to the aid of David. And in some way, I think we can say just generally and definitively that the forest in some way helped David's military more than it helped Absalom's military. And what seems like from the text is that Absalom's military thought maybe that the forest might provide them shelter or provide them some form of help, but it didn't. It helped David's men more than Absalom. So I'm not entirely sure all the nuances of how we should take that line, but that's my, that's what my gut tells me. And that that's, I think, I think that's right. Uh, At least that's what I would bet on, but you know, it could be a number of other things. It could be, Maybe, I don't know, there could be lions in the midst of that uh, forest for all we know. I'll go with ENTS. I'm not sure what that means. So anyway, uh, Blake can explain. I'm sure Blake's being smart. Like, the shepherds of the trees. Ants. Okay. Uh, I think that's a Lord of the Rings reference. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> anyway, um, Sarcasm is much harder over, uh, over, over text. Um, all right. So we move, so there's the story takes a, a twist here at the very end where, uh, Absalom is buried and you, you'll note just as a reminder here, it says, um, let's, let's get down to 1618. So, uh, Joab blows the trumpet And uh, they took Absalom, verse 17, they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled to his own home. This is is sort of saturated with a good deal of irony because in the beginning, Hushai actually warned Absalom that not only would David not be there, um, when you went to find him, but he would be hiding in a pit. And then in the end, who's the one that's in a pit, hiding in a pit? It's Absalom upon his deathbed is thrown into the pit. So there's, there's like a little twist there that happens. And it's the same word that's being, that's used in both places. Um, in fact, the, the next time it's used. And then another interesting thing is that Absalom is the one that is actually laid to rest outside the land and David's exile is only temporary. He's going to be brought back into the land. Uh, but Absalom is the one who, when he dies, he dies as an outcast. He dies as, the, as the, the, the one that's sort of left outside of the promised land. And then what is what was what did Absalom deserve for his committing of murder against his brother? He deserved to be executed, but not just any kind of execution. He deserved to be executed by stoning, uh, according to the law. Well, how does he die? When he dies, he's thrown into a pit, and all these stones are heaped, a pile of stones are heaped up onto him as his grave, as just a reminder of the atrocities that he that he has committed in the kingdom. So he is given his capital offense, put to death, and then uh, his dead body is essentially stoned as the pile of stones is laid on him. So there's this dramatic twist at the end, but I I think the most, the, the significant kind of the thing about all of this and which has some measure of comfort, I think, even for the Christian in the new Testament era is that uh, God's kingdom will always be vindicated. It will always be vindicated. Now that doesn't necessarily mean like David, the beneficiaries of God's kingdom will see the vindication in their present age. If you flash forward all the way to Revelation chapter 6, there are, there's a picture in Revelation 6 as the fifth seal is open of the souls under the altar. And they're crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, until you vindicate us? How long, O Lord, until you... Um, you vindicate the blood that we shed as martyrs 
uh, for the kingdom. And he does. So it doesn't, doesn't necessarily happen in their lifetime. Paul, the apostle Paul, was by all accounts in church history beheaded. Um, Peter, by all accounts, is crucified upside down. Many others were, were killed in various and sundry ways. And they didn't see the vindication in their lifetime of God's kingdom and, uh, and, and the, the, the subjects of his kingdom. But they will one day. And really, all Christians will see the vindication of, of God's kingdom. It won't necessarily happen in our lifetime. But the, com- the second coming of Christ, um, I mean, that's to put on pause for just a moment, the first coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ will be the ultimate vindication of all of God's people at the moment when Christ is revealed. And it's understood by everybody in that time that all that the Christians were preaching was true. Um, it, that, and then the first coming was an immense vindication for the Jews in, to the watching world. That as Christ rose from the dead on the third day, this is what they go around preaching. The Christ you crucified, he rose again on the third day, and we're here to testify about it. This is the ultimate vindication. So as we look at Jesus, his first coming and his second coming, this is the ultimate vindication for all those that would consider themselves a part of God's kingdom. And and so uh, the story of David shows us some measure of that, that God is vindicating his king in the death of Absalom and the turning asunder of of Absalom's whole story, where he looked like he was the one that had the power. And yet at the end, he ends up the one in the pit he ends up the one outside the land. He ends up the one stoned. Uh, and David ends up being the one vindicated and brought back into the city. Questions? Uh, comments? Thoughts? ENTS. It went over my head. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing blank. You want to fill us in, Blake? It's the shepherds of the trees, the big tree people, tree beard and all that. Give us the book. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was a Lord of the Rings reference. Nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to watch it, I guess. (laughs) Books are always better. Yeah. Similar idea, though, in being communicated here, I think. All right. Other, any other questions? Bob, I had a, I had a feeling a question was coming. Oh, no. Okay. All right. Either it was that clear, that overwhelming, or that underwhelming. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right, well, um, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, we will be uh, in, in the church building this coming Sunday again, and uh, we hope some of you will be there. I was really, I was, it was really in, interested and pleased to see. I mean, there, there were uh, quite a few people. Uh, I think probably uh, not only were there a lot of people there, I mean, there, there were probably at least uh, more than a third of our congregation was, was back in, in place. Um, not quite half, but somewhere between a third and a half. And um, probably I would say, Bob Blake, you could probably tell me eighty-five percent wearing masks uh, this Sunday. So, uh, which was which was encouraging and really good. I mean, you know, regardless of our feelings on any of this stuff, it's um, you know, we I think everybody recognizes the that everybody's got people in their lives they visit that are or they talk to or they take care of or whatever that are uh, compromised, you know, in their immune system in one way or the other, and it's more, you know, more of that, I think, too, than anything else. And, 
you know, you see a person in a, in a mask, that doesn't mean that they're living in fear or they're whatever, but they, that they have other concerns in their own life. And so, you know, as much as we can help them and watch out for them, I think particularly the biggest concern is singing too, you know, and, and so those are, those are really helpful, I think for a lot of people and, you know, and so I was encouraged to see it. Um, hope it, hope it continues, but anyway, uh, let me pray for us and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly father, uh, I thank you for this opportunity to gather together to discuss, to talk, to, um, rejoice over your word and to just see, uh, the fact that even in discipline of David, you still, uh, have not left him without vindication. And, um, that we recognize that your servants are always outside of Christ sinful and that we have, uh, in every capacity, um, committed tremendous atrocities in some cases and, and atrocities against you, against your name and, and deserve the punishment that we should rightly receive. And, um, and yet you, uh, took the punishment on your own shoulders for us. We recognize how, how tremendous that is. And, um, we are also grateful for it, recognizing that we are in some cases worse than David in some of the things that he's done. And yet you tell us, your word tells us you discipline us because you love us and you care for us. And, and that is so hard to, to think about in the midst of discipline, but um, we are, are grateful for it. We're grateful for your care and your love for us and your testimony to us through your word that you love us, that you care for us, that you're faithful and that you will always carry through on your promises, regardless of how sinful we can be, uh, that your promises will, you will keep your promises sometimes in spite of us. And, um, and so we are grateful for that. Uh, we are grateful for what your word does in us, through us, to us, um, to the people around us. We are grateful for that in Jesus name. Amen.